You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Read together verses 16 through 21. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful to you you for giving us your word. And before we can begin to rightly understand your truth and how you have revealed yourself, we need the assistance of the Spirit of God to be our guide and our comforter, our helper, So we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may behold in your word wonderful things, and that through the illuminating work of the Spirit, we may come to understand you, our great God and Savior, so much more deeply and more profoundly. Fill our hearts, we pray, with wonder, love, and praise for Christ, and we pray that this might be the result of the Spirit of God working in us and through us and through your word. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, it seems appropriate that we would have now this to be the third message on the third person, of the Holy Trinity. And so this, we've been studying the, the subject of the Trinity and our triune God and particularly the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit from John chapter 14. And uh, it may seem as if we've been going a little bit slow. We, we've been covering a lot of material, though we've been going slow in terms of the text and working our way through this. Um, sometimes trying to be deliberate and clear and precise can translate into slow. At least it feels like we're going slowly, but that is surely not the intention just to go slow for the sake of being slow. We're trying to lay a foundation of understanding regarding who the Spirit of God is and what His work is in the church. And this foundation will serve us in future, in future passages as we look at the other passages in this farewell discourse that are, have to do with the Holy Spirit. And so this foundation that we've been laying the last couple of weeks, we'll be able to build upon that as we move forward through this farewell discourse and I suggested a couple of weeks ago an outline for these two verses, five things that we see or learn about the Helper from 14 verses 16 and 17. First, we learned about the Helper and his role within the Holy Trinity. We saw that he, the Helper, is a person. It is referred to by personal pronouns. Jesus calls him he and refers to him. So he is a person. He is not a power, not a force, not an influence. Second, he is God. We saw Jesus refer to him as another Helper, Another being the word that would be used to refer to another of the same kind or the same nature. So the helper is another helper, one who is like or of the same nature and essence as Christ. And so since Christ is equal with the Father in terms of his being and his essence, and the Spirit is equal to Christ in terms of his being and essence, therefore the Holy Spirit is God and he is called God in Scripture. And then we noticed in his role in relationship to the Trinity that the Holy Spirit is in submission to the Father and the Son. So the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Son prays to the Father on behalf of His people whom He has redeemed. 
that the Father would send the Helper to be the Helper for the, His people. And so the, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. The Spirit then being in submission, not lesser than in terms of His being, but willingly and voluntarily, not necessarily, but voluntarily submitting Himself to the Father and the Son. So He is, that is His role within the Trinity. Then second, we looked at His relationship or His role concerning believers. What is He to us? And that is all summed up in that one word, helper, which means advocate. And it has a, a forensic uh, a forensic feel to it. And in John's writing, it's it's primarily used in terms of one's witness or one's testimony for Christ. And that seems to be the way that it is used here in this farewell discourse, that the, the helper, our advocate, is one who pleads the cause of Christ and bears witness to Christ even through his people. So Christ, in sending another helper, sends to us someone who dwells within us, whose function and goal is to empower testimony concerning Christ and to bear witness concerning the gospel and the person of Christ in and through the church. And then we looked at the helpers uh, residing within us, that being a reality that will take place forever. He is with us, and He is in us, and He will be in us, and He will be with us and in us for all of eternity. So the plan of God from eternity past was that the people of God, the church of Christ, would be in Christ in terms of its identity and its position and its righteousness, and that God would be in His people both in time and for all of eternity. And now we turn to the last two things that we learn about the Helper, both of these contained in verse 17. We see that the Helper is rejected by the world and received or recognized by believers. Look at verse 17. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. The Helper is rejected by the world. It's not recognized by the world. But it is, He is, I should say, He is recognized by believers. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. So He's rejected by the world and recognized by believers. Let's deal with the first one. He's rejected by the world. And we'll get through both of these today. He is rejected by the world. Verse 17 says, The Spirit of truth the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. That term Spirit of truth tells us a lot about this person that we call the Holy Spirit. Um, In the four passages of the Farewell Discourse, all four times that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, He calls Him the Helper. Three out of the four passages, he also calls him the Spirit of Truth. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. There Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth. And he is also called the Spirit of Truth in chapter 16, verse 13. Beginning at verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So three times in this, in this larger section, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. When Jesus calls Him the Spirit of Truth, what does He mean? What does that tell us about the Holy Spirit and His works, His activities, His gifts, His affections? It tells us that all of those things are characterized by truth. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of Truth. Now, truth is one of the main themes of John's Gospel. We've seen it as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John. Back in the prologue, the very first few verses, do you remember He says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, in the very prologue of the Gospel, in the introduction to this Gospel, John mentions truth twice, and he says that this truth is summed up in the person of Christ. That grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. Well, here we have the Spirit called the Spirit of Truth. And keep in mind that even in this context, in the immediate context here, that Jesus claimed to Himself be the truth. Remember chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And what do we learn about the truth back in chapter 14, verse 6? That all that is true is summed up in Christ. And Christ himself is the true God, the true Savior, the true Messiah. He is truth incarnate. But here he refers to the Spirit of truth. That means that we have two persons, Christ and the Holy Spirit, who are both called the truth. This is why we can refer to the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, which Paul does in Romans 8, 9, Philippians 1, verse 17, 19, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, where the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Christ is the truth, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So when Jesus says, I will send you another helper, another advocate who is of the same nature and the same kind, the same essence of myself, he is saying, I'm going to send to you another one who is himself truth. I am the truth. I will send to you another who is also the spirit of truth. So what is it that the spirit of God does that is so characterized by truth? What is his relationship to the truth? We would never be able to say that the spirit of God is less interested in truth than the father or the son or that he is less aware of the truth than the Father or the Son. The Spirit of God is just as aware of and interested in and committed to the truth as both the Father and the Son are, because he is the Spirit of truth. Meaning that everything the Spirit does, everything the Spirit reveals, everything the Spirit says, everything all of the Spirit's affections and ambitions and activities, all of it is characterized by the truth. He is the Spirit whose very nature and essence and character is described with that one word, He is the truth. Just as Christ is the truth, and just as the Father is true, and in Him is no lie and no shadow of turning, so also the Spirit of God being equal with the Father, He is the truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Look at chapter 16, if you will, of John, verse 12. I want you to read a couple of of things that that describe this, His relationship and and. His essence of truth. Chapter 16, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but wherever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes, that is the Spirit, takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. So what is the Spirit's relationship to the truth? The Spirit's job is to reveal truth and to speak truth and to illuminate truth and to empower truth and to use the truth to sanctify the people of God in the truth. What is it that the Spirit of God uses in our lives in the gospel? It's the truth. And what does He use to sanctify us? It is the truth. What is the Spirit interested in? Ecstatic, emotional experiences? He is interested in the truth because He is the Spirit of truth. Now there are some implications to this. Let me give you a few of them. If the Spirit of God has written this book, then this book is true. There's no doubt that what we have today is what was originally written. The question is, what was written, was it true or was it false? It is true. It must be true because if this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is unable to communicate any error or to err in any way. Meaning that the Spirit of God did not, when He wrote Scripture, He did not get it wrong. Even though He used human authors, human pens, as it were, to write out His Word, He got it right. And He cannot get it wrong because He cannot inspire error. He cannot inspire confusion. He cannot inspire that which is wrong or even inspire or write down or speak that which is even remotely capable of error because He is the Spirit of truth. 
Meaning that the Spirit of God got it right about creation and when creation happened and how creation happened and who did the creating. The Spirit of God got it right about human sexuality and God's moral standards. The Spirit of God got it right about what marriage is. The Spirit of God got it right about the existence of heaven and the existence of hell. He can do no wrong and He can speak no wrong because He is the Spirit of truth. And this becomes for us, this phrase, Spirit of truth, becomes a litmus test of sorts for us. And let me show you how. Since the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth and He cannot inspire or say that which is wrong or in error or inaccurate, that means that anybody who stands up to speak on behalf of God and says that they are getting revelations or visions or dreams or prophetic words of knowledge, but they get it right about one time out of 50 and they get it wrong the rest of the time, that is not the work of the Spirit of God. Do you know what the prophetic work of the Spirit of God is? He gets it right every single time. So no spiritual gift that confuses human error with divine truth and mixes it all together and then throws it out there for the people of God to sort of sort through and try and pull out the truth and call out all the error and the, and the wrong things, that is not a work of the Spirit of God. So you can take all of your visions of heaven and your prophecies and your dreams and your modern day revelations and your fresh fire of the Holy Spirit and all these movements and everything that purport to be from the Spirit of God, which are so gobbled up in error and falsehood and blasphemies and, and false prophecies and all of that. You can put it all under one banner and the banner would read this, not the work of the Spirit of God. It's the work of a spirit, but not the Spirit of truth. Because the Spirit of truth never gets anything wrong. I received, uh, it was about February of this year, I think it was, I received a little piece of paper from somebody, and I was hoping to have this so I could bring it here today and read to you, but it got filed or sorted or something, I don't know where it went. Um, somebody who attended our church a long time ago, only a couple of times, I don't think anybody here would even know him, but after a service, he walked up and he handed me a handwritten piece of paper, and on that handwritten piece of paper was his claims of prophecies that he said were going to come true before the end of this calendar year. And one of them was the total collapse of the United States around the end of May, and anybody who was going to obey the Spirit of God had to go to Canada at the end of May uh, to avoid this collapse and then not come back until after the collapse had sort of recovered. That was the, the Word of God to me. I was supposed to pass this on to you. Sorry, I didn't. I'm passing it on to you now. It's a bit late. As it turns out, the end of May was about the time that our family was headed to Canada anyway because we were on a, on a, a trip. I didn't leave because I thought there was any validity to this whatsoever. But uh, there was all sorts of things attached to this, things that were going to happen throughout the course of this year. And uh, I wanted it for two reasons this morning. First, because I wanted to read you and kind of use that as an example. If this man were of the Spirit of God, he wouldn't have gotten anything wrong. He wouldn't have gotten anything wrong. The second reason I wanted to find it is because I wanted to call him. And I wanted to say, uh, so, remember that piece of paper you handed me back in like February? Where are we, where are we at on this? Are you willing to repent of your false prophecies? See, this, the Spirit of God does not, does not take a gift and mingle it with error and blasphemies and false prophecies and then put it into the church to cause confusion and distraction and falsehood to spread amongst the people of God. That's not the work of the Spirit of God. It's not the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God would get it right. Now, I don't believe on the face of it that these modern-day visions and prophecies and words of knowledge and revelations are valid even in the least. Not one bit. We don't need that because we already have everything that is necessary for life and godliness written down for us, and I need no further revelation. There are people who think that the prophetic gift, that's, that's what the prophetic gift is supposed to look like today. 
that the prophet, when he speaks for the Spirit, he speaks infallibly because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. But you can never tell whether a prophet's speaking on behalf of the Spirit or on behalf of himself. So all the wrong stuff that modern-day prophets speak, that's all wrong. That's all from them. But occasionally he'll hit on a gem, and that's the work of the Spirit of God. And you and I are supposed to sort that out somehow? That's, that's not the work of the Spirit of God. Not at all. Furthermore, any movement, any movement, any denomination, any church, any parachurch organization, any supposed or purported movement of the Spirit of God that does not cherish and love and have at its very center the truth of the Word of God as the very thing around which everybody gathers and, uh, and, and of which everybody makes much of. If, if that movement does not have the Word of truth at its very center, it's not of the Spirit of God. It's easy to find people in movements today that say, well, we're the, we're the new wave of the Holy Spirit. We're the new movement of the Holy Spirit. Then you start asking them doctrinal questions and questions about the truth and where they're at on this and you know what, what is your view of Scripture. And you will always find in those movements that Scripture is secondary, if even secondary. It's tertiary or fourthiary or fifthiary. It's way down the list. But what is primary at the, at the center of those movements is what the fresh stuff that God's doing today and not the ancient truth. Any movement that does not make much of the Word of God and does not love the truth and is not committed to the truth and have the truth at the center of it is not a movement that the Spirit of God is blessing or will bless. It is not a movement that the Spirit of God is using. The world cannot receive the Spirit because the world is antithetical to the Spirit because He is the Spirit of truth. And that tells us a little bit about why the, the world cannot receive Him. The world cannot receive Him because He is the Spirit of truth. And the world is opposite to all of that. Luther, concerning these private revelations and visions, Luther said this, Whenever you hear anyone boast that he has something by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it has no basis in God's Word, no matter what it may be, tell him that this is the work of the devil. And then Luther went on to say this, Whatever does not have its origin in the Scriptures is surely from the devil himself. That was Luther's view. of People who claim to speak for God and hear from God, but it did not match up at all with Scripture. The world cannot receive... The Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. Now that word cannot is kind of like the word cannot back in chapter 6. We've, we noticed all the way through John that there are things that John says can happen and cannot happen. And often in John's Gospel he will say, you cannot do this, this cannot happen, uh, the world cannot receive the Spirit. Do you remember back in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? The can there does not describe a lack of permission, it describes a lack of power. Jesus is not saying that everybody wants to come to Him, but the, the, but the Father keeps them away and doesn't give them permission to come. He is saying that nobody has the ability to come. It's not that people are not allowed, it's that people are not able. They lack the power. It is the same here. The world, the world system and the people in the world do not have the power, the ability to receive the Spirit of God. Now, there is some question as to whether what Jesus means here is the world as in the world system or the world as in all the individual people and persons in the world? In in which way is Jesus using the term world? Because it can have different meanings in different contexts. I think that what Jesus is describing is all the individual persons in the world, because you'll notice in verse 17 that there is a contrast between those who are in the world, or the world, but you. The world cannot receive the Spirit, but you can. And who is the but you in verse 17? It's the individual disciples, those who are believers. So I don't think that Jesus is contrasting the disciples, the individuals called out of the world with the world system. 
I believe Jesus is contrasting those who are in the world, namely all of the individual persons in the world, with those who have been called out of the world whom the world hates. And Jesus will describe them at the end of chapter 15 when He says the world hates you because you're not of the world. You don't belong to that mass of humanity. You've been called out of and chosen out of the world. And that's the reason the world hates you, because you don't belong to it. I think the same thing is true here, that the ones who do not and cannot receive the Spirit is not the world system as an entity, as, as, as a group, but the individuals within the world, the persons who are unsaved, the natural man cannot and does not receive the Spirit of God. Now, obviously, the world system cannot receive the Spirit. Why is that? Because the world system is a system built on lies. All of the culture, all of the politics, all of the sports, all of the media, the entertainment, the fashion, the commerce, the religions, uh, the, everything about the world is a house of lies built on sand. And so the world system, as a system antithetical to God, cannot receive the spirit of truth. Everything that is true, the world has the exact opposite view of it. If you find yourself agreeing with pagans on everything, you have serious problems because you are agreeing with people who cannot receive the truth and do not understand the truth. So everything that is of the world is lies, and God's perspective and God's truth is the opposite of that on on every point, on every detail. If the world were to receive the truth, it would immediately self-implode and, and be destroyed. It cannot because it is built on lies. But furthermore, individuals within the world, individual people, the natural man, cannot receive the Spirit of God. What does that mean? I think that there are probably three aspects that are in mind here. First, that the natural man has no ability or capacity to receive the Spirit of God. No ability or capacity. You take that pretty little baby that is just born, and he, she's got that new baby smell, right? We all love that. It lasts for six or eight months, and then the new baby smell factory gets shut off or whatever happens with new babies, and they no longer smell like new babies. That little, precious, born baby straight out of the womb, beautiful, lovely, cherished, and precious, has no innate capacity, none whatsoever, to receive spiritual truth, to understand spiritual truth, to apprehend it, or to accept it, or to embrace it. There's no compartment within our natural being that is marked compartment for truth. That's just waiting for somebody to plug truth into it so that all of a sudden things make sense. The natural man has no capacity whatsoever to embrace or understand things which are of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit or truth. No natural abilities. Further, it would also mean that the truth or the, the Spirit of truth cannot be received by man's efforts. There is no amount of striving after enlightenment or digging down into world religions or pursuing things which are cosmically divine that can cause us or allow us to arrive at the Spirit and the Spirit of truth, to finally arrive there. So, Chopra and Oprah and all the other New Age mystics who think that they have arrived at some cosmic consciousness and think that they have arrived at some way of understanding God and understanding truth, they haven't. They can't. You cannot get there by natural ability. You can't reason your way to divine truth. You can't think through divine truth. Mankind has no capacity to receive it, to think through it, to understand it, to apprehend it, to appraise it, to appreciate it. The natural man is bereft entirely of that capacity. And he cannot get there through all of his reasonings and his attempts and his efforts. Deepak Chopra is in touch with the spiritual reality. There's no doubt about that. But Deepak Chopra is not in touch with the spirit of truth. As the natural man who rejects Christ, he has no capacity, no ability, no compartment by which he might assess that truth or understand it. 
And further, the, the natural man does not have, uh, sorry, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God cannot be assessed or apprehended through natural senses. Look at verse 17. The Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it does not see Him. What does the world around us want? How, how does the world around us evaluate things? We want something that we can feel, something that we can taste, something that we can touch or see or smell. We want something tangible. The, the world system has no ability to see the Spirit of God at work. Right now, as we sit here, the Spirit of God is at work amongst all of us. He's putting some of you to sleep. He's keeping others of you awake. But the Spirit of God is here amongst us and He is working. And as we get together, we sing, we sing the truth and we appreciate the truth and we are thinking upon the truth. And the Spirit of God is at work here in one degree or another, sanctifying all of us, calling unbelievers to Himself, opening people's eyes to the truth, illuminating the truth of God, taking the Word of God as, as it is preached and helping it to make sense and making you think about something different than the person in front of you or beside you is thinking in this message. The Spirit of God does that amongst us. And then as we fellowship together and we, and we appreciate truth together and we reflect upon truth together and we sing and we pray together, the Spirit of God is at work amongst all of us. Now, you take an unbeliever and you put him right in the middle of us. And you say, you describe what I just described to him. Is that going to make any sense? I don't see him. You can tell me all day long that the Spirit of God is here and that he dwells within you and that he dwells within me and he dwells within all of these people. But if I can't see the Spirit of God and I can't touch the Spirit of God and I can't hear the Spirit of God, he thinks you're nuts. But you're not nuts. You have the Spirit of God. It's a reality. But the natural man does not receive Him because he cannot see Him. Let me give you an illustration of this. Right now, passing through this room, through your body, over our heads, are thousands of radio waves of all kinds of different frequencies. Some of them analog, some of them digital. Light waves that you cannot see of all kinds of different frequencies and spectrums. Thousands of waves going through this room right now. But you can't pick any of them up, can you? You can't just lick your finger and stick it in the air and get in just the right position like an antenna on top of a TV and suddenly you pick up the local sports talk network. You, you can't do that, can you? Even the radio signal that connects the battery pack on my belt to the sound system at the back of the room, it's going right over your head. It's going right through you right now. You can't pick that up. Why? Because you do not have the equipment necessary to receive the signal. The signal is there, but you have no capacity to receive it. I have no capacity to receive it because I lack the equipment, which is the antenna tuned to the right frequency. So it is with the natural man. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him because these things are spiritually discerned. What must happen? Something must happen in the natural man to give him the capacity to receive the Spirit and to understand spiritual things. What is that? That is regeneration. When the Spirit of God regenerates a sinner and at that very instant gives grants to that sinner both repentance and the gift of faith so that that sinner comes to understand the truth and this at the very same instant the Spirit of God indwells that sinner, suddenly they have the capacity to understand spiritual things. Suddenly they have a capacity to realize the Spirit of God is active and He dwells within me. And He testifies with my spirit that I am the child of God. And He has empowered His church and He dwells among us. And now we begin to see the work of the Spirit of God. The, the Christian understands. We, we can look at things that are going on and say, that's a move of the Spirit and that's not a move of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit and that's not a work of the Spirit. I can see how the Spirit is using this and the Spirit is doing that. We, as we become familiar with God and familiar with the work of the Spirit is, these things make sense to us because we have the capacity now to understand them, which we did not have before we were saved. Because the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. 
And so the world and those who are in the world, they cannot receive the Spirit of God. It's not that they lack permission. They lack the power. They lack the equipment. They lack the antenna to pick up that frequency. They have no innate ability. It's not by human effort. It's not by human senses. It's not by anything which is natural to man. It is completely and entirely a gracious and sovereign and supernatural spiritual work. But you, verse 17, but you know the Spirit. You know Him. You know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. How is it that the disciples, and this is that the believers do receive the Spirit of God, Unbelievers, the world rejects him, but believers receive him and recognize him. How is it that you are different than the world? Who made you to differ? Well, that was the work of the Spirit of God. In what way could Jesus say that the disciples knew him? They knew the Spirit. Well, the disciples could read through the Old Testament the same as we can. They can see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters at creation. They can see the Spirit of God blessing the nation of Israel and and communicating the spiritual blessings of the Old Covenant to that nation in their obedience. They can see the Spirit of God at work in the lives of their leaders like uh, like David and, and even like Solomon before he deteriorated. They could see the Spirit of God at work in the prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ. The disciples could read through the Old Testament and they could be familiar with the Ruach. That's the word, the Hebrew word for spirit. The Ruach of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord who was busy and active in all of those ways. And further, they knew Him because the Spirit of Christ even dwelt with them in the person of Christ. They were there with Christ. And so when Jesus said, you know Him and He abides with you, what is the abiding? In what way had the Spirit was the Spirit abiding with the disciples? The one who is one in nature and one in essence had lived with these disciples for three years. They had lived in the presence of the Spirit of God in the person of Christ. He was the man of the Spirit. The Messiah, the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord came and rested and never departed and never left. Controlled by the Spirit, dominated by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, so that every word he spoke was a Spirit-filled word. Word, Every deed he did was a Spirit-filled deed. Everything he did, everywhere he went, completely and always under the control of the Spirit of God, they saw the nature and essence of the Spirit of God in human flesh and had lived with Him. He is with you, Jesus could say. Because Jesus was with them and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. One in nature and one in essence. They had seen the incarnation of all the the blessed nature of the triune God in the person of Christ and that included the Spirit of God. Christ was not the incarnation of that person. He is the incarnation of all that is God and they could see in Christ all that could be seen and known not only of the Father but also of the Spirit since they are one in nature and one in essence. And then when Jesus says, He will be with you, that is referring to Pentecost, which was still just a few weeks away. But the Spirit of God, though He abided with them in Christ, would come at Pentecost and dwell with and in His church. And that would be a forever reality. Remember from last week, this this takes place forever. This happens forever. The abiding and the coming of the Spirit, He will never leave us. He will be in us and He will be with us for all of eternity in heaven. This is a forever reality. By the way, that's another indication of the nature of salvation that is lasting and permanent. That's another argument for eternal security, if you will. If men, if the sheep were not secure in their salvation, Jesus could never promise anybody that the Spirit of God be with them forever. The very fact that He can say to the disciples, the, the Spirit of God is in you and will be with you forever. Let an Arminian try and figure out that verse. Let an Arminian try and, and explain that. What, what would he say? The Spirit of God will be with you until you lose Him, and then you get Him back again, and then you lose Him. And hopefully, when you die, you have Him. Otherwise, you lose your salvation. That that wouldn't make any sense. But the reality is that the Spirit of God will be with us forever. Verse 16. What a blessing you and I have been given that Old Testament saints did not enjoy. 
Do you realize that? We have been given an immense and tremendous blessing in the indwelling of the Spirit. Sometimes we think that the Spirit dwelling within us is a downgrade. As if it would be better to have Christ here physically present with us. But since he left, he kind of looked around and thought, well, I'll give him something to kind of hold him over until I come back to get him. I guess I'll give him the Holy Spirit. It's not a downgrade. That was an upgrade. Do you understand that all the progression of redemptive history has been increasing in blessing and increasing in benefit and increasing in intensity? The revelation of the Spirit and the giving of the Spirit to the people of God is not a downgrade. It's not second best to having Jesus. It is to have the exalted and risen and living Christ dwelling within the hearts of every single believer. With His power and His wisdom, His grace and His ability, it is to have the residing of Jesus Christ Himself. That, that is not secondary. Now, I hope this, as we've gone through this, this kind of helps you to think Trinitarian. In terms of the Trinity, it helps you think in terms of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes for us as Christians, it's a bit challenging. And we, we tend to go to extremes. Sometimes we, we want to focus on what the Father has done. The, the Father has chosen us and adopted us. And, and, and we have these, these times in our life when we focus upon the work of the Father and the person of the Father. And then we kind of swing to a different side of the pendulum and we focus on the Son and what the Son has done. And we tend to neglect either one of the other two members of the Trinity. Or now we have whole movements in Christianity that focus on the Spirit. What the Spirit is doing today. And it's all about the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the experience of the Spirit. And all the things that attend the the Spirit are what they at least blame the Spirit for. But the goal of Trinitarian theology, of Christianity as a Trinitarian faith, is to appreciate and love and adore the three persons of the Holy Godhead. All three persons at the same time. John MacArthur in his book, Strange Fire, has a chapter of corrective regarding the Holy Spirit. And he writes this, and this this is helpful. As those who have been redeemed, our response to the miracle of salvation should be one of awestruck worship, praising each member of the Godhead for his part in the glorious outworking of redemption. It is right to worship the Father for his electing love, predestining us to salvation from before the foundation of the world. It is right to worship the Son for his perfect sacrifice, providing the means through which fallen men and women can be reconciled to God. And it is equally demanded that we worship the Holy Spirit for his active role in the salvation of sinners, imparting life to dead hearts and sight to spiritually blind eyes. End quote. See how each person's work of redemption in the Trinity is highlighted there? And it is right for us to focus and worship each one for his role in the salvation of sinners. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says something similar, but in Puritan language. And he writes this, A man's communion and converse, that means conversation, a man's communion and converse is sometimes with the Father, then with the Son, and then with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes his heart is drawn out to consider the Father's love in choosing, and then the love of Christ in redeeming, and so the love of the Holy Spirit that searcheth the deep things of God and revealeth them to us, and taketh all the pains with us. And so a man comes from one witness to another distinctly. I'm going to pause right there and explain to you what he's saying. He is saying that, At times, our unique fellowship with God comes in terms of us thinking and reflecting upon the person of the Father for what He has done, and then the person of the Son for the unique things that He has done, and then the person of the Holy Spirit for the unique things that He has done. And we converse with the three of them, sometimes at the same time, sometimes individually in our communion and our fellowship and our worship, recognizing and adoring each for His work. And then Goodwin writes this, Assurance is not a knowledge by way of argument or deduction 
whereby we infer that if one member of the Trinity loveth me, then the other loveth me too. But it is intuitively, as I may so express it, and we should never be satisfied. Listen to this. We should never be satisfied until all three persons lie level in us and all make their abode with us. And we sit, as it were, in the midst of them while they all manifest their love to us. End quote. Now that is profound. What is Goodwin saying? We should, in our love and adoration of the triune God, never be satisfied until all three persons of the Trinity lie level within us. That is to say that we do not make much of one while neglecting any of the other persons of the Trinity. We do not focus on one while neglecting any of the others. They lie level within us, and we sit, as it were, in the midst of them, the three of them, and we are aware that our God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we worship and adore and love and praise and serve and fellowship and communion, a commune with all three of them equally. We should not be satisfied until they lie level within us and until we sit in the midst of them, aware of all three of their presence as they manifest their love to us. That is the goal. Now, as we participate in communion, typically our communion is, is a reflection upon the, the person of Christ and his work for us. It's his blood that was shed his body that was broken. It was not the Father who was incarnate and took upon Himself human flesh and died. It was not the Spirit who was incarnated and took upon Himself human flesh and suffered and died. That is uniquely the work of the Son. But even in reflecting on the work of the Son and His body and His blood, we are at the same time, and we have to be aware of what the other members of the Trinity also did. It is the Father who sent the Son to offer that sacrifice. And it was the Son who willingly came at the direction of the Father and in submission to the Father's will to offer that sacrifice. And in that sacrifice, the Son purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit on behalf of His people. And so now, in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we partake of communion, aware that we are recognizing what the Son has done because of the Father's great love for us. And while we do this, the Spirit of God is ministering to our hearts, uniting us in unity one with another, and sanctifying us in the truth. So even our observance of communion is a fellowship with and over and around all three persons of the Holy Trinity. Though we are uniquely focusing on what Christ has done, at the same time, we do not want to neglect what the Father and the Spirit have done on our behalf. So as we partake of communion, I would encourage you of a couple things that I try and remind you of each time. If you're not a believer, let the cup and the bread pass from before you. You eat and drink judgment to yourself if you do not judge the body rightly. So do not eat and drink damnation to yourself by partaking of something that was not is not for you. Um, as a Christian, you can eat and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner if you eat and drink while you harbor sin in your heart. So if you have sin, unconfessed, that you're not dealing with, you refuse to repent of, do not partake of communion. In doing so, it is an act of blasphemy. Because this is for the people of God who have been purchased by that body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us confess our sin together, pray together, and after a couple of moments, I will close this in prayer. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.